0: Shalom Aleichem, we are continuing in our Expanding Horizons series. We're in the introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. On page 26 in the Roman numerals, but 24 in the PDF numbers. So if you open up your Google Classroom, and you go to the Zoom invitation that you received to get to whatever classroom you're in right now, at the bottom of the invitation... You will see a few links. One of them is a PDF for today's Shi'u titled Ketel Shemto Volume 3. It's loading up on my screen right now. So you're looking for Keter Shem Tov volume 3 and you should be in the introduction. We're almost at the end. On page 26 in the Roman numerals or 24 in your PDF numbers. So Rabbi Tov Gagin is walking us through A number of examples scattered throughout Shulchan Aruch, in which Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, rules Halacha according to the strict letter of the law, meaning the laws of the Talmud and the Bedina Gadol of Yerushalayim, and showing us many instances in which the Ramah, who's always perceived as the stricter authority, the more uh, stringent opinion, the one that covers all the bases, this commentary of the Ramah in many, many, many places shows us that really it's Maran who is the strict follower of Halakha and it's the Ramah who is deviating from Halakha over and over and over again. To the Ramah's defense, I will say that oftentimes he's justifying an existing Ashkenazi custom. It's not that he's trying to violate the Halakha, but whenever he sees a breach in the Halakha, he seems to be finding ways that can justify why the Ashkenazim, at least of his time, were violating this Halakha. This is part of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's attempt to change the perception of Marana Shuchal it's always that Sephardim are so lenient and Ashkenazim are so strict. And that somehow it would be forbidden for uh, Ashkenazim to follow Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo. The reason being is it's a more lenient opinion than that of the Rama, Rabbi Moshe Yitzh And really that's not true. Like we saw last week in or Aruch, Orachayim, we see that many, many, many places Maran is ruling Halakha exactly like the Talmud. And it's the Rama who is justifying all kinds of practices that are not in line with that of the Talmud. So if you are in your Keter Shem Tov, Volume 3, you want to be on page 26 of the Roman numerals or 24 of the PDF numbers, and I'm starting in the middle of the page where it says Shuchan Aruch Yore in acronym. Shina'in Yud Vav Today's examples are going to touch on some topics that you're certainly familiar with, and other topics which are going to be new to all of us. And my intention today is to cover Shulchan Aruch Yoredeah so that next week we can do Evan Hazer and the following week we can finish up with this entire section of Choshen Mishpat Bizad and so that we can conclude what really is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin trying to tell us. Let's look in Yoredeah. For those who've taken some Semicha courses or you've studied those areas of Yisur V'eter and Shulchan for various reasons, I think some of what we're reading today may be eye-opening to you. For those who haven't, certainly it will be. And I made a PDF that accompanies this PDF. So if you look at the Google Classroom, there's another link It says Expanding Horizons. In that link, I've made reference to every single one of these pizke halakha that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is talking about, but I've done it in Sepharia so that you can click on any links and check out what it says in other places, that way this book is not just a book, but it could be used as a source sheet for other conversations. Let's look at the first halakha he mentions. Now it's interesting to me that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin skips the first 111 chapters of Yore De'a. He starts with chapter 112. Why? Like I told you, Rabbi Gagin, there are certain things, I don't always understand exactly the methodology, but these are good examples that he brings for us, and it's important to look at them. If you look in the book, in the middle of the page, and in the source sheet in Yorel 1, I'll be referencing both, so please have them both open. Sham, says Rabbi there in Siman Kuf chapter 112 know what halachot uh, Kuf Yud Bet and they are about? I mean now that you have it open you can take a guess. So Kuf Aleph ends what everybody studies for Semichah. So Kuf Yud-Alef ends Taravot. Kuf Yud Bet starts a whole new chapter of That's Kuf Yud that's 113 112 is close close to that the one right before that. It's pat shal the bread, or baked goods of non-Jews, which are, have very different halachot than chapter 113, which are cooked foods of non-Jews. Let's summarize this, if I can say it outside first. Regarding bread that was baked by someone who's not Jewish, let's say that all the ingredients are kasher. So there's two reasons why our rabbis prohibited bread, seemingly, that was baked by non-Jews. And we know who they are? The first is Rashi's reason. Why would. What? Chadun. Chadun, regular intermarriage. That's good, okay? Uh, That's the reason why we still hold it down today. The first reason I want to know what Rashi suggests, another reason, a little more practical. If you go to a non Jewish bakery, what could you uh, be worried about? Maybe. Maybe the bread's not kasher. Maybe there's something in there they can't eat. Correct? So essentially, in order to have a whole conversation of whether you can eat bread from Goim or not, the real question you have to first answer is, is the food even kosher? If the food is not kasher, meaning the bread is, has lard in it from a pig, then of course you can't eat this, uh, this bread. We're only talking about bread that is made with kosher ingredients. Yes? So this is the assumption that we're working with in Siman Kuf Bit is that really the concern that we have is that which uh, more mentioned, and that is the sort of khatanut the concern that uh, we're not allowed to come and marry someone who's not Jewish and by sharing baked goods and we get close with each other, you know, you move into a house and the next door neighbor brings you, uh, oh, here we baked you a chocolate cake, it's 100% kosher, disposable pan, uh, the Duncan Hines, who knows, uh, cake mix. We even read online about the laws of Yashan. We know that this works. And for sure, the oven, we, we checked on Chabad.org, how to make it kosher. I mean, the whole thing is kasher. Are you allowed to eat that cake? No, you can't. Why? Mishum We cannot get that close to people that we're not allowed to marry. Thank you very much. We're very, very grateful to be good neighbors for you. We will be good neighbors for you. You can always come get chocolate cake from us. But we have a prohibition on our end of eating this baked product. That is true whenever it comes to bread that is between us and our our friends, but bread that's baked in a commercial setting. Pat shel nachtom, or pat paltar, pat palter, depends where you're hanging out. This bread that is baked in a commercial setting, there are chachamim who believed that there is no prohibition to buy bread from there. The reason being, because you don't know the baker, the baker's in the back. It's a commercial bread. Nobody's baking it for you because they like you. You're coming. You're paying for it. And I can tell you, at least I can tell you by Sephardim. In every single Sephardic country, with the exception of the Makubalin. In every single Sephardic country, all of our forefathers ate bread that was baked by Goyim. No, no woodpicks in the oven. Or just regular bread. You go by Pitot and Lafot. From the Arabs, from the non-Jews that were around us. But we always had people that were more careful with this halakha, that less careful with this halakha. And therefore, Maran has an interesting halakha. Look here in Shuchan Aruch. Mi shenizhar mipad goyim. It says Oved Kochavim. Someone who's careful not to eat bread of non-Jews. Mutar le'ekol be'kehara yim mi shenonizhar You're allowed to share the same bowl as a person who's not so careful with the halacha, meaning someone who, not, not, not correct say not careful, someone who prohibits the consumption of bread of goyim, is allowed to share the same bowl with a person who permits the consumption of bread of goyim. What's going on here? Give me the scenario. How are we eating? We're sitting around the table. Think Maran's world. Probably you're not in a chair. Probably you're sitting on the floor. And what is this bowl that's in front of us? I'm scheduled to give a show scheduled to give a shoe on Pachel Goyim in the chavura in the UK later this year. God willing, I will I will uh, be doing a whole session on Pachel Goyim. Say more. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It's, like big, it's the big dish that everyone eats from. Very good. It's not a, a Western culture where everyone's eating out of their own plate and their own fork. And a, there's a big bowl in the middle that everyone is sharing it. So you take your bread and you imagine the food is. Uh, rice with meat, so you take your bread and you scoop it up like that, or let's say hummus, and you're all sharing the same bowl. And it's in the middle, that's why there are halachot, for example, in Shulchan Aruch, about who gets to eat from the bowl first. The greater you are, the older you are, the tamil chamim, so on and so forth, there are conversations, because there's a culture and etiquette surrounding eating from the same bowl. It might be very different than how you imagine eating today, I'm sure that half the Chachamim, whose books we study, if we would see the way they eat, we would think they're, are oh, look at those primitive people. They sat on the floor, they ate with their hands. They, that, was, that was normal in the world in which they live. I'm not sure that we're any better, but we think that we're better. In this halacha, so let's say, Mord, you and I are sitting in the same in the same table, where we're having the same hummus, and I dip my bread, which is pachel goim, I dip it into the hummus, and you, you're very... No more. They're very religious. You don't eat patz goyim. So because of that, you take your bread, which is 100% pat israel. Are you allowed to dip it in my hummus? Bone says Maran, yes. Even though the flavor of my bread mixes in the flavor of your bread, and there's no reason to be stringent. Meaning we don't take it that far. It's a very interesting halacha, which has practical ramifications in the world today. Let's say you are very careful about Pachal goim. You want to go use a, a toaster. You tell something in somebody else's house. People will go out of their mind to be strict about these things. Ramaz is not a big deal, but the Rama, the Rama. Look at this one. It's one of my favorite Ramaz. Yesh Omrim. Some say the is harmi patchal goim. That someone who is very careful about Pachal goim, they don't eat patchal goim. And he's eating at a meal with other people who are not particular about Pach eva He can eat with them so as not to fight with them. What does it mean he can eat with them so as not to fight with them? Well, how is this different than what Maran said? When Maran says you can eat with them, which type of bread are you eating? Your own bread. Your own bread. What is the Amma telling you here? Which bread can you eat? You can eat their bread, their patchad Goyim, You can eat it. Says the Amma because if you don't eat this bread, then you'll end up fighting with them, and it will be an uncomfortable situation. Because of that, Chachamim allow you to eat pacha goim with your friends. Who eat pachal Goyim? Have you ever heard of such a halakha before? You keep kosher, but when you eat with other people, that doesn't make a difference. says the Ramah very carefully, but don't make a mistake. Don't apply this halakha to any other pro... Like, you know, you're sitting with your friends, they're having bacon and eggs. Oh, you also have to eat bacon. What can you do? You don't want to fight with them. That's not the case. Here, the Isur of Pachat Goyim is a weak Isur in the first place. And Chachami, well, therefore they were more lenient about it. Maran was lenient in his way. The Ramah is adding a whole new level of leniency. So who is stricter in this scenario? Maran or the Ramah? Would Maran say what the Ramah says? I actually don't know. He's quite his source, as the Bet you in the name of a chuvashkanazit. ashkenazit. Uh, but I will tell you that here you find the Ramah is more lenient than Maran. So why does Maran always get the reputation of being too lenient? And the Ramah gets this reputation of always being so strict? Let's look at the next Hancha. Ebu Gagin tells us to look in Kuf Yud And I'm not reading his words because he's just writing word for word what the Raman wrote. I'd rather read you the Raman side. Now tell me about the laws in chapter 113. Pam, you mentioned Bishud Ha'goyim. What are the rules of Bishud Ha'goyim? What kind of food is a non-Jew not allowed to cook for us? Or, or the other way around, what kind of food is a non-Jew allowed to cook for us? The assumption is, of course, that the ingredients are kasher, the pans and pots are kasherim, the oven is kasher, All, I mean, we're assuming that everything is kasher. So now, in terms of the food, which kind of food are they allowed to or not allowed to cook for us? There are two rules we're looking for. Anyone know there? If you know, kick it off. Uh, one of them is that it has to be something that uh, can, can be eaten cooked only, like meaning I can't eat it raw, I think the other one is that it has to be something that's important or fancy enough that it could be eaten by kings. Like not simple like street food or whatever, like snack stuff. Very good. So two categories of bisholeh In order for something to be prohibited because a non-Jew cooked it, it has to be the kind of thing that you couldn't eat raw. I mean, if you could eat it raw, it doesn't help me that you cooked a tomato. I could also eat a tomato raw. But if you cook, uh, uh, tell me something. Uh, you cook rice for me. Rice, I couldn't eat rice raw. So you cooked it. Now you did something again. The prohibition of eating cooked food of non-Jews is because we don't want to come to intermarriage. And the fact that someone, you know, when a couple is dating each other, there comes that point in a relationship where they say, "Let me cook you dinner." Cooking dinner is a, its an intimate act. It's something that promotes closeness. And our Chachamim didn't want that type of closeness between us and people that we cannot marry. So they prohibited foods that could be that then must be cooked from being cooked by going but if they could be eaten raw that's fine the second it has to be something important enough to be served at a king's table meaning if it's just something they would serve in the street it's uh, something simple that's not a big deal if somebody cooks for you but if it's something rice was a good example that i chose because rice not only cannot be eaten raw but it would be served at a state's dinner and and, uh, actually it would be very important, those of you in the United Kingdom, I'm sure that in Buckingham Palace, for example, there are very strict rules about what are served and what is not served. My feeling is that in America, uh, the White House is not anywhere near the same level of uh, uh, high class standards that you find in a, anywhere with the royal community. And I'm sure that those standards change over the years. I, I remember seeing one of the recent presidents with a bunch of Burger King boxes or something. I mean, that's a whole different reality than what you may have seen even 50 years ago in the United States of America. But, l'maseh, these are the two halachot. Now, there's a third category, which I'm not going to speak about now, but in my UK class, in the Chavura, I will speak about it, and that is, there there are some who understand that it has to be specifically foods that you eat with bread. but things that you don't eat with bread it would be a different category. I'm not sticking my head on that right now. So, Let's give examples of things that non-Jews are able to cook for us. If a non-Jew cooked a tomato for us, could we eat it? Yes, very good. What about corn? Can corn be eaten raw? Who says yes to corn raw? Pam, you eat corn raw? What does raw mean? Raw means you take it off the cob and you eat it? Uh, There there are two kinds of corn. There's um, peeled corn, which is more starchy. And then there's sweet corn, um, which is more sweet. That's the kind you find frozen kernels. Okay. Pam, you can pa- corn raw, but it might not be as good, but you can actually eat it raw. It's so, very fresh. Like Things that you can eat raw doesn't mean that you would eat them raw. So let me give an example. Hopefully Pam won't jump on me. She made my life complicated with corn. Potato. What about a potato? Could you do you eat, Not could you. Do people eat potatoes raw? No. Could you serve them at a state's dinner, roasted potatoes? Of course, yes. Because of that, potatoes are the type of thing that a non-Jew cannot cook for us. Now, what does a Jew have to do in order for the food to be considered cooked by a Jew? There's a famous (laughs) Mahloket Maran and the Ramah. Maran says the Jew has to actually put the food in the fire, meaning he has to actually cook the food. Yes, you take the pot, put it in the fire, that means a Jewish person cooked the food. What does the Ramah say? The Ramah says, no, it's enough. It's okay, even if the even if the Jew just turns on the fire. Now many, many, many Achawani disagree with the Ramah, but almost every kosher establishment you eat in your life, they do this, where the Jew turns on the fire and then they cook for the next three years on a fire that a Jew cooked three, turned on three years ago, and shalom Aleichem. Listen, it's not my Kashrut class today. We'll talk about that when we get to Kashrut. But for right now, there's another question. There are some Chachamim who believed that people that are owned by us, so in the days where Jewish people had slaves, that a non-Jewish slave would be allowed to cook in a Jewish home for a Jewish person. Let's read Maran. There are some who are lenient in the second source in the PDF, in the Sefariah source sheet. Regarding our Non-Jewish maids. Maid servants. There are some who say that even you can't rely on this opinion. Now when Maran says yes and yes, which is the halacha like? The first opinion or the second opinion? Someone in my call that help me out. More? First one? Give oh. me the first one. Usually the first one, when Maran writes the first one, bestam, he just says halakha is like this, yesh mi and there are those who say otherwise. But when Maran writes yesh, and then he says yesh, there are some and there are some, the opinion always follows the second one. Yes? This is one of the rules of Maran. So Maran, his opinion is that even bidi'avad, meaning even if a non-Jewish maid servant cooked for us, we wouldn't eat the food. Even though there's who to rely on, we don't believe that opinion is able to be relied on. Now says the of Avad, but if it already happened, we could rely on those who were permissive about this. Now says the Ramah, not only do we rely on this opinion, but even the Chatkhila, even on an ideal level, you can rely on the fact that in a Jewish home, that the non-Jewish staff is cooking the food for us, because inevitably one of the Jewish members of the household will walk by and stir something or cook something or do something, and because of that, all the food in the house is considered kasher, even though it's cooked entirely by goyim, entirely on fires that the goyim lit, and this is the custom in Ashkelos, to allow non-Jews to cook food for us when the Jewish person is not involved at all. Maran, Maran, would say even b'di'avad this food is prohibited. When I go to a kosher restaurant, I ask them for the mashgiach to please cook the food. And if the mashgiach cannot cook the food, I ask for a salad. It's a chumah, not a chumah. This is a halacha. What am I supposed to do? Chachamim prohibited The turning on the fire doesn't help me anything. I could also turn on the fire. What does it help? That's like saying. Uh, you know, I turned on the barbecue and my wife barbecues the whole day, but ah, uh, how do you like my food? I didn't do anything, I just turned on the fire. What did, what did it do? I nothing. Now, when it comes to, I was once in a restaurant in New York. A uh, uh, good hashgacha, yani. In this hasgakha, you should see the, it looked nicer than my smicha certificates, this hashgacha. was a beautiful thing. Mahadrin. mir mahadreen the father of the mehadrin, all the mehadrin, you could possibly imagine, all the khumrat, they listed all of the chumrot, the eggs don't stay overnight, the onions are not, everything, all the things that are not actually a halakhot, they're all already on the flight. So I come to the restaurant, and I said, please, uh, could you ask the mashgiach to cook the food for me? And they said, the mashgiach is not in the kitchen, he's here, he's the guy at the table. So I go to the guy at the table, are you the mashgiach? He said, yes. said, do you mind cooking that, that food for me? I think I might have been dating my wife then, I don't remember if this was my wife. It might right before, I, yeah, oh, was I dating you then? Yeah, okay, so, yeah. yes, so I, I asked the Mashiach, do you mind going to just put that food in the fire for me? And he tells me, no, I don't go into the kitchen. Well, you don't go into the kitchen, he said, this is my seat. I, said, I know it's your seat, because you're playing on your iPhone right now, uh, Candy Crush, whatever he was doing there. I said, but, but you, I'm asking you please to go to the kitchen, put the food in the fire. He tells me, I don't go back into the kitchen. It offends the non Jewish crew when I'm in the kitchen. As you tell me, you don't go to the kitchen? I say, no, I have the key to the kitchen. I open it in the morning, I close it at night, and I stay here the whole day. That way, I don't bother them in the back. I call the Rav Makshir. I never complain about Kashrut to people. I call the Rav Makshir. Just so you know that the guy doesn't go to the kitchen. Yeah, I know. That's my policy. That's your policy. So what kind of, I could also do kosher supervision like that. I'm going to put a guy, 13 years old, with an iPhone, outside of every restaurant in the world. i say, he opens the door, he closes the door, all the food inside is kasher mehadrin, mehadrin. I, mean, I couldn't even ask the guy. Now you should know, you should know. I asked the person behind the counter if, I could, if they would let me into the kitchen. And of course we we'll let you into the kitchen, if that's not a big deal. But I went back into the kitchen, and here, look, look at this. All of the food is already cooked. Meaning, this wasn't a very fancy restaurant. I wasn't taking my wife there to to the restaurant. But uh, all of the food was already cooked. And what they do, when you order, it was a Chinese restaurant. You order sesame chicken, they take it out of the freezer, and they heat it up for you, and they serve it to you. Meaning, even if the mishliach wanted to make the food for me, he couldn't, because all the food is already cooked by goyim for days and days and days and days. There's nothing he could do about it. Uh, I didn't, Chava, I can't read your question. It's far away from me. Anyone want to tell me what Chava wrote? Nobody wants to tell me what Chava wrote? Do you want to share what you wrote or do you want me to read it out loud? She's probably she's probably at work and she can't read it out loud. Okay. It says, how does one reconcile the reasoning behind the halakha being to prevent marriage slash a personal relationship with the fact that that does not apply in a modern restaurant setting where I have no idea who's cooking my food in the back? Uh, thank you, Chava. That's a great question. And I will be giving a course on bishulei goyim with the Chavurah. you're not part of it, get part of it. Uh, but this... This thing of, the, the restaurants of today are no different than the restaurants of yesterday. You can know the person in the back. You can. Can I speak to the chef? The fact that you are able to is the whole problem. It's nothing more than that. Uh, we, are, we are having our food cooked by people that are not, you should know, on the commentaries in the Shulchan Aruch. Maybe the Taz I want to tell you. The Taz asks, I think it's him. He asks two questions. There's two types of goyim that will never marry us. The first, a Catholic priest. Catholic priests don't get married. Can Catholic priests cook food for us? The second question, what about non-Jewish royal families? Let's say the Queen of England invites you, you're not allowed to marry, now they had the whole thing with Japan, the princess in Japan, she married somebody who's not a prince, and the whole world is going crazy about it. She, officially, she's not allowed to marry us, so can we have food cooked for us by the royal family? And the town says, Lopluk. Chachamim didn't make a difference. Can they cook for us? Can they not cook for us? No, say it's all the same situation. I heard, I haven't seen it myself, but I heard that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, alav wanted to say the things that are made in factories, let's say in another country, in the Far East somewhere, that the laws of Bisholei Goyim shouldn't apply there because we don't even have the ability to know who was cooking that food. I don't know of any modern Chachamim who saw that Teshuvah and agreed with it in the I'm certain that one of the kosher agencies out there relies on such a thing, but I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that unless I did proper analysis of the sugia and off the top of my head, it doesn't feel like it's the right it's the right way to assess the halakha, but who knows? Sorry, can I just um, pick up on one yes, thing? Yes, please. If, if, just, just to clarify, so if the well, was in a restaurant and, and a Jew doesn't cook the food, you will not have cooked food there? I will not eat it. I know. uh, What? Based on this Yeah, uh, now I will tell you that there is one to rely on. Chacham of Adiyah Yosef, he believed that there's a sfek sfekah here. Maybe a Jew is working in the back and they cook the food. You don't know for sure that a non Jew is in the kitchen cooking. You assume, but it's an assumption. The second is maybe the halakha is like uh, the one who says it's permissible that a non-Jewish employee is considered the same as a non-Jewish slave, which is a very far stretch. Let's say that's opinion. Here you have a double doubt, and because of that, when you're on your own and you're telling people, don't tell a non-Jew to cook food for you, but when you go to a non uh, kosher restaurant or a kosher wedding hall or so on and so forth, then you have to be particular. Uh, you don't have to be particular because there's a sfek out here, and the famous thing with the Yosef family is that they will do a svek sveka, even against a shulchan but I, I don't do svek against Maran, and so here, here I I'm, and I'm not I'm not showing off here a I'm telling you that the by Bishul we're very careful. We're very careful Bishul Agunim, it's a law that Chachamim put into play. And at my wedding, at my wedding, uh, my in-laws and my parents were very kind that they accepted this request from myself and our Peretz not to serve red meat by your wedding. The problems of Shekhi are too much, just chicken. It was a very fancy wedding, but we served just uh, just chicken and any kind of dish that had chicken. And the second was I paid out of my own pocket. I paid a, a few hundred dollars. It was, a khatan, it was a I paid for somebody to go and cook all the food. Everything. Meaning, somebody was in the kitchen. Every single thing they made in that kitchen was cooked by somebody Jewish. At my wedding I wasn't going to serve anybody anything that was cooked by Goy. What am I supposed to do? There's a halacha like that. Can I ignore halachot? I, listen, if it was up to me, i could I'd justify everything that somebody does with an opinion somewhere. But the ma'aset person says, I follow Shulchan Aruch, I'm a Sefaradim. So be Sefaradim, follow Shulchan Aruch. I can't jump in, in both parties and dance in both parties. Thank you. Yeah? Now, you, when I, I'll tell you, there are places where there are very high concentrations of Sefaradim. So when I was in New York, for example, in Flatbush, there's a very big Syrian community there. When I went to them and I said, could you have the mashgah please cook the food, it was one of those fast food restaurants. What was that? It was like a schnitzel restaurant. I went, Only place that was open 1 o'clock in the morning when I landed in New York. And uh, they announced on the speakerphone to the kitchen, uh, please make order 312 super kosher, please. And the guy in the back, I guess he knows that super kosher is when the mashgiach cooks the food. Baruch Hashem for super kosher options in a glad kosher restaurant. The next <laughs> the next halakha here, uh, in Siman Kuf you done it. Kuf Yudalet is a very interesting siman. There's some interesting halachot there. I wish I could study. One day we'll have a Yorei class. We'll go through Yorei together properly. But for right now, we're jumping through the examples Rabbi Shem Gagin is telling us. Now He quotes here, the Ramah in Sif Aleph. So Maran writes the following words. If you're in your... There's two sheets we're looking at. The Ketosh Hashem Volume 3 and the Sepharia source sheet. I'm in Halakha number 3 in the Sepharia source sheet. Maran writes, Kol Shechar Shel goyim. All of... All, Alcoholic beverages, shikhal. Let's say, really, it uh, could be beer of the goyim. Echad shikhal shetamarim, whether it's made from dates or shalteanim, or a figs or shalteoriim, or a barley or shaldevua or shaldevash, or honey, asur mishum It's forbidden because of intermarriage. We're not allowed to drink their alcohol. asur ele It's only forbidden in the place in which they sell it but if you bring this beer to your house and you drink it in your home it's permissible by the way, we're not talking about wine why are we not talking about wine? wine is a completely different halacha of idolatrous wine here we're just talking about alcoholic beverage which is forbidden to us because of the same decree of our rabbis not to intermarry with non-Jews because the whole prohibition is maybe we'll come to eat with him. And it's only prohibited in a way in which you're, I'm sitting myself down here to drink. But if you enter the house of an and you go and you pass through and you drink just it's a one-off thing it's not something that you have intentionally this every week we're getting together to drink it happened mutar it's permissible this story happened to hara peretz. peretz before he became hara peretz that we know here he was sent to denmark to be a rabbi there and as a rabbi in denmark he had to supervise a factory of cheeses and he gets to a certain place and he does not speak any language that the locals would know including english And they don't speak Hebrew or French or Arabic or anything else that he would have known at that time. And Harapereit is found and is finds himself some non-Jewish person invites him to his house. They wanted to see a rabbi. They never saw a rabbi before, and he sits down with them. And they ask him if they can make him anything to eat or drink, and he says, "If you have beer, I'll drink a beer with you." And so they bring Hagaperez a bottle of beer and he drinks. How could it be? It's a one off. Not, you're not, not your best buddy. They're not your drinking friends. You don't go watch football together with them. It's a one off thing. It's mutar. And if you stay in the house of a non Jew, it's considered your house. And it's permissible to send someone out to go buy uh, alcoholic beverages from the non Jews that are there. Ramah says. So that's Maran Ramah writes. There are some who permit alcoholic beverages of honey and grains to drink them even in the place where they sell them. I'm not trying to ruin anybody's alcoholic experience. I'm certain that the Chavonim have all kinds of differences that they say here, but you want to walk into a bar, into a pub, into a tavern, into any other place where people drink and sit down and have a drink, According to Maran, it's forbidden to drink that way. According to the Ramah, in our, our countries, we are lenient about this halakha. What is the origin of this halakha? Gagin, This is explicitly violating the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah. Look at Masechet Avodah Zarah, in Salakha 4. Why did our Rabbis prohibit the beer of non-Jews? There are two different reasons that are given that why we're not allowed to drink their beverages. And the Gemara continues with the story. Rav Papa, let's read it in English. Rav Papa had them bring out the beer belonging to the goyim from the entrance of the store and he would drink it outside the store. Rav Achai would have them bring the beer to his house and he would drink it there. And both of them drank the beer away from the presence of goyim due to concern about marriage with goyim. Meaning, I buy the beer and then I walk outside of the bar and then I drink the beer. That's the way you can do it with halakha. But in the bar, no, like I told you, I didn't come to ruin anybody's night out or plan to go somewhere tonight. I'm, not here. I'm just telling you that Rabbi Gagin is pointing out yet another place in the laws of Kashrut. Oh, Safaladim are so lenient about Kashrut. Really? Are we lenient about Kashrut? Right now we're on example number three where Safaladim are following the Talmud and Ashkenazim are blatantly violating not just the Shulchan Aruch, but the Talmud itself, and telling us that we are not strict enough, and therefore you can't eat in my house, therefore you can't eat in my dishes, therefore you can't come to my wedding, therefore, oh, you understand? The Bishen of Gagin has to set this record straight. Let's look at the next halakha he brings to us. It's in 6 in my source sheet. In the laws of Yayin Nesikh, as you know, wine. When I say wine, I mean wine that is not mevushal. Because what is mevushal wine? What is the boiled wine? It's not wine anymore. The reason why non-Jews can touch mevushal wine is because that wine has lost its status of wine. As such, it's very interesting. We say a non-Jew cannot touch a bottle of wine that's open or a cup of wine or so on and so on because maybe, maybe they'll... offering that to their God which is Avodah Zarah would prohibit us from drinking that wine so what do we do? we boil the wine what happens when we boil the wine? the non jew could still offer it to their God, no? so why does boiling the wine help? they won't offer it no, very good they won't offer it no self-respecting Avodah Zarah will offer his boiled wine to his God That's, that's disgusting he won't offer spoiled wine to his God so what do we do? We're going to buy mevushal wine to offer it to our God. That way they won't offer it to Avodah but we'll offer it to We'll do kiddush in mevushal wine, we'll do havdalah in mevushal wine, we'll do a wedding on mevushal wine. Why? So that way the goyim don't touch it because they will never offer it to their gods. You understand the absurdity here? If you wouldn't offer it to Avodah Zarah, why do you offer it to the creator of the universe? It's very unusual that Jewish people prefer to use mevushal wine. It's very, very unusual. But it works, meaning I'm not telling you it can't work. I'm just telling you it's it's an unusual thing. Now, I'm not even convinced, and I'll be doing a course on wine again in the UK later this year. I'm not even convinced that the wine of Goyim, uh, the wine of the Jews that are Mevushal today, is really Mevushal. What does it mean, Mevushal? You know how they do Bishul today? When Chachamim spoke about mevushal wine, they meant take your bottle of wine, pour it in a pot on the fire, boil that wine until it's bubbling, and then pour it back in the cup, let it cool, and then drink it. The way they do bishul today, you see, when you do bishul to wine, it ruins the quality of the wine. And so they flash bishul it. They have these long pipes. They pass the wine through it. It reaches a very hot temperature, and right away they cool it down. So for a split second, it's at this hot temperature. Now it's mevushal. But if you look in the Chida, you look in the writings of the Ben their definition of Bishul is that the, the, the wine almost becomes like this sickly, sweet, thick syrup. Almost like it's spoiled. It should taste a little spoiled. And that's what Bishul means. You can drink it, but it's not going to be wine that you're drinking with your ribeye steak for dinner. It's not the kind of wine you're drinking. I'm not convinced that wine that the you call Mivushal today is allowed to be touched by Goyim. See, nobody ever hangs around with me when we study Yoreh uh, about the parts in which we're strict. They only look about the parts in which we... But by Bishul, I'm not even convinced that the wine that you have in your house is Mevushal. If a non-Jew would touch it, I'm not sure that you could drink it afterwards. That's, that's for me to say. You'll figure it out on your own one day. Now in Halakhash Shukhan Maran writes the following. The, the wine of non-Jews is Forbidden for us even to receive benefit from it, meaning we're not even forget you can't drink it, but you can't even sell the bottle to somebody else. That's certainly true when it comes to them touching our wine, I meaning their wine I can't drink for sure, but even if they touch my wine, I'm not allowed to drink it. The Ramah says, Nowadays. Because it's not so common that non-Jews offer wine to their idols. It's not part of their idol worship service, really. Correct? Is it really not so prevalent that non-Jews use wine when it comes to their Avodah Zarah? They do. They do. Betsy, where do they do it? In church? Every Sunday in church, no? But I read an article not so long ago that the wafers they use on Sundays, there are some opinions in various churches, not necessarily the Catholic Church, that those wafers should be kosher. So they have a yeah, it's a fascinating thing to see sacrament wafers that are kosher. Uh, but that's that's already like a whole new level of Jewish, Jewish business for right now, for right now. Bayan <laughs> Eno that nowadays, where the Goyim don't really use the wine for idol worship purposes, that we're not allowed to drink it, but we're allowed to sell that wine. And says, it says, That's exactly prohibited, uh, that violates exactly what the Mishnah and the Gemara say in Avodah Zarah. Just in the interest of time, I'm not going to read to you this Mishnah and the Gemara, but I did attach them as source 8. In your uh, Safari associate if you want to look it up on your own. The next halakha. Rama writes another thing about wine. Maran says in halakha 9 If a non Jew touches our wine using something else, not intentionally, they're walking by and their umbrella touches our wine. He was coming down from the palm tree and he's holding a lulav in his hand. And he touches our wine with a lulav without any intention. Or he was walking. He touches the the corner of his jacket, touches our cup or our bottle without any intention. He wasn't trying to offer anything, wasn't even trying to touch your bottle of wine. Or let's say he was trying, he was saying, Listen, we're social distancing. Right next to me, there's a bank. Then, in the bank, in the beginning of COVID, when they handed things to each other, and there's a sport. I'm not remembering the name of the sport. It's like a long stick with a net at the end of it. And the bank tellers had these sticks, and they would fill up the money, and they would hand it across the the room to the person on the other side and they would take the money from that basket. So he was intending to hand us that bottle but he didn't know it was wine. He thought it was a water bottle. Says Maran, It's permissible even to drink. So indirect contact or unintentional contact is permitted according to Maran. Indirect meaning indirect and he doesn't know that it's wine. Says the Ramam, And nowadays, nowadays the nations of the world are not pagans. All of the things they touch is considered unintentional touching. You heard what the Ramah just said? Can a non Jew touch your bottle of wine? Yeah, nowadays it's okay. It's all unintentional touching, because nowadays the goyim are not even idol worshippers. That goes explicitly against, says the Shem of Gagin, that which it says in the Gemara, in Masech at Avodah So you have yet another place where the halakhot of the Talmud are entirely disregarded, because nowadays the halakha is different. Can you imagine us saying that about anything else? Nowadays halakha is different, and oh strict rabbinic supervision. Again, the purpose here is not to besmirch the Ramah. The purpose here is to show there's a consistent pattern of the Maran following the Talmud and the Ramah that doesn't, yet somehow the reputation in the Jewish community is that Sephardim are so lenient that they never follow Halakha, and Ashkenazim are so strict because they're always doing super Halakha. But really, that's not true. Let's see the next example Bisham Dovregin shows. It. And Siman Kuf Lamed Bet. Kuf Lamed Bet, again, it's another example of of, uh, wine of Avodah I feel like we've talked a lot about wine already. Let's go to the next section. Uh, The top of page 27 in the Roman numerals and then 25 in your regular Ket Shem Tov at the top. Siman Kuf Memchet 148. This section of Shulchan Aruch is ignored entirely. Because it would make our lives very difficult, especially in this season of the year. And every uh, time this, every year this time of year rolls around, and I see all kinds of Jews write all kinds of ludicrous things about how Jews should act or not act surrounding non Jewish holidays, and we're obligated this, we're obligated that. And I always wonder if these people ever read Shulchan Aruch. That's always what I wonder. Uh, Because they have all kinds of preconceived notions they've received from their favorite political celebrities or their favorite YouTube radio show hosts or their favorite people with little tiny kipot on their head who tell them all of what Judaism tells the, their interpretations of Jewish politics and so on and so forth. But Shulchan Aruch, all of these people, uh, they've never read. I recently had someone come talk to me about politics and I said, are you familiar with this sugiah in the Jewish context? What are you talking about? You don't know, don't, please don't have an opinion about, it. just like you wouldn't have an opinion on the laws of Shabbat if you never studied the laws of Shabbat. Please, Don't have a Jewish opinion on politics if you never studied the Jewish opinions on politics. In chapter 148 of Shulchan Aruch, this entire section has to do with our relationships with non-Jews throughout the holiday season, whichever holiday season they're currently worshipping. So in every country it will be different. It depends on the the Avodah Zarah of that particular place. Maran writes the following halakha based off the Talmud. Let's look in source 13. Three days before any non-Jewish holiday. It's forbidden to buy from them or sell from them anything that will last for the holiday. But you're allowed to sell them things that won't last until their holiday, like vegetables, and foods, meaning you don't want to be selling somebody three days before their pagan festival food that they're going to serve at their pagan festival. We're not allowed to do that. So, I'm not talking about food. Let's say you don't want to sell them plates. Plates they're going to use for their festival. That's why they're coming to buy it now. But, let's say chicken. They don't have refrigerators. They're going to eat the chicken tonight. You can sell them a cooked chicken today because it's not going to last three days from now for their holiday. And this halakha... this also has to do with money and financial loans. We don't take loans, we don't give loans. The next halakha, 14 says, Yes, Some say, says Maran. That all of these laws, it's a long section of halakhot, so I just skipped 12 halakhot. All of these things that we cannot do with non Jews surrounding their pagan holidays. It doesn't apply nowadays. Only then. But nowadays, they're not such experts in their idol worship. He's telling you something very interesting. It's not that Goyim are not idol worshipers, but it's that they're not so fundamentalist about their idol worship. I don't know that your average Christian on the street can explain to you the theology behind a Trinity and what is a tri- how does a Trinity work and how is it different than one God. And In their head, they're pretty. it's pretty... It's pretty uh, kind of like your average Jewish person probably can't explain to you about Yichud Hashem and the definitions of of Hakadosh Baruch Hu and how that works and what is it whether they're a rationalist or a Kabbalist or whatever they are they can they, likely they're not so familiar with their religion. And therefore, Maram quotes this other opinion that says that nowadays it's really permissible to do this. Says the Ramah, Even if you know the non-Jews are going to give this money to their priests, they don't offer to their gods or they don't beautify their gods with this money, that the priests use this to eat or drink. Furthermore, we're afraid that we might cause hatred between the communities. If on the day of their celebration we separate ourselves from them. And we are stuck in Galut and we live among them. By the way, by the way, you're going to see in two classes from now that this is likely the reason why so many Ashkenazi Halakhot in this particular department are, are so lenient. And lenient meaning permissive. Because they really were in a very difficult situation. You cannot judge the Ashkenazim who were living among murderers, mamash murderers, not like our buddies were any better. But they lived in a really, really... Every time I think about Ashkenazi Jewry, and I think about the books of Halakha, the books of Musar, the books that were written in the middle of, of crusades and pogroms and, and massacres and, and the most vile things on earth, it's not just, wow, look at what they did. It's, look at what they did against all odds. Look at what they were able to do while they were being massacred by the whole world. If anything, when I see those books, even if I don't always agree with the halachot or the musar contain I am in awe that Am Yisrael is so dedicated to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that in all of that they were... But Ramah is telling you it's practically very dangerous for us to observe this halakhah. We might get killed by the non-Jews around us. We live amongst them. And we must do business with them the whole year. And therefore, if you enter a city and you find them celebrating, they're all the whole streets, everyone is celebrating their non Jewish festival. You have to celebrate with them also. you understand what Ramah is telling you here? You walk into a pagan city and it's the middle of pagan day, whatever idol they worship, they're all dancing in the streets and throwing holy water in the air, whatever is going on in this holiday, you have to go celebrate with them too, says the Ramah. It's not considered a violation of halacha because you're just trying to show them favor so that they don't kill you. It's best if a person is able to avoid the situation entirely. And then he goes on, Rama, saying what he's saying. Says Rabbi can you imagine Maran telling you that if you walk into a non-Jewish city and the day that they're worshipping idols, that you should go celebrate their idols with them? He said, I understand why, and I understand the context, and I understand. He said, but then how long can you continue telling me that this is the most traditional form of Judaism that doesn't budge about any Jewish values, that this halakha is the way we've done halakha forever, and everything else the Orthodox Jewish community tells you again It's not true. You're literally permitting against the Shulchan against the Rambam, against the Talmud, against the Mishnah, perhaps even against the Torah, to celebrate Avodah zarah. At the very least, do it with some humility. Don't do it while also trying to convince us that this is the most traditional type of Judaism in the world. The next section. By the way, it's the reason I'm teaching this class from San Diego, because if I was right now in the United Kingdom, I wouldn't be able to speak the way I'm speaking right now. You have to kind of tone it down a little bit. So over here, I'm able to say all kinds of things that I can't say over there. Uh, This next halakha, I'm going to do one or two more examples, and I'll I'll finish the section. I'm not going to read you every single halakha that's in the source sheet. Um, Ayerid. Okay, let's do ayerid. That's a good one. Ayerid is a fair, is a fair of Avodah some kind of festival that is happening. Now we're not allowed to go to Yerid. Maran writes in 15. If there's a fair that is happening on a non-Jewish pagan holiday, and all the non-Jews around are gathering together in this place, and they're going there for their Avodah you're allowed to walk around the fair, like around the city, but not inside of it it's prohibited to enter if the fair is around the city you're allowed to enter into the city and if you're traveling in a specific way and that way is that road that they're doing their parade on don't walk in that place Maran says that this only applies by a, a lodger, but if a resident of the city is there, it's permitted. Let's leave that alone. Rama writes, Okay. I don't think I quoted you the right halakha. Yeah, look in Dalit. Look in 17 the Ramah writes in 17, and a regular festival of goyim nowadays is permissible, Distama el it's probably not for Avodah Zarah. This bl- blanket definition, yeah, when you see festivals of non-Jews celebrating some holiday, you're allowed to go there because likely it's not for Avodah Zarah. Again, says Rabbi Shem Gagin, look what he says, how did the Ramah even permit this? You're not even allowed to enter the city in which there's a fair. Let alone say, oh, you can go to the fair because likely it's not for Avodah Zarah. This attitude that you find over and over by the Ramah, as much as you can justify it, like we mentioned, it was dangerous, or whatever else it was, it still stands in violation of Halakha. I want to look to you on one more Halakha. I just intentionally am skipping two. I'm not going to do the last one. It's about mourning and you know, I don't want to leave anybody off in halachot of mourning, so I will just look at one more. And that's going to be let me find it for you. If someone finds it before me, please tell me where it is in my source sheet. It's going to be shin here. And paid uh, uh, source 33. In a functional Jewish community, the Jewish community has the ability to do nidui to excommunicate a person. How does it work? Someone does something wrong, whatever it is, let's give an example, somebody doesn't want to give his wife a get. He wants to torture her. Now, in a Sephardic community, Bedin would just beat him and force him to give a get. Yeah, but let's say you, we didn't have the right to beat him for whatever reason, so we put him in nidui. An example. What are the halakhot of a person who's in nidui? What are you not allowed to do with him? But right, Kanganalia for sure in the synagogue. More than that. We don't count it. We don't, we don't count the verminian. We don't say amen des Brachot. We don't say hello, shalom. We don't say Shalom al him. We don't say goodbye to him. We walk away if he's near us. We don't walk within four Amod We we totally shun this person from society entirely. Why? There are certain in averot that chachamim said the Jewish community has the right to put these um, uh, uh, restrictions on him so that he'll do teshuvah and come to the right path it's a force where we're using social pressure to force a person to do what the Jewish community believes is the right thing now you can argue whether this is a, a right way to get people to do things or not I'm, I'm, you're talking about a Jewish community in which the Jewish community is the government so you can imagine that in another country there would be a rule like this this certain person is for example in California someone who's a felon uh, is not allowed to buy a weapon. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed. There's certain things they can do. They lost their right to do that, at least for now. Uh, there are some states in which that doesn't apply forever. It's a seven-year period in which, once those seven years pass, they can rejoin as regular members of society. This is this is something that is done everywhere. In the Jewish community, it just applies to these particular uh, things. So Maran says, "If the bedin of the city excommunicates a person because he didn't averah." And the non Jewish government says, whoever is going to uphold the ruling of the Bedin and shun this person, we will punish them. We risk it. We continue to shun him because, yeah, maybe we'll get caught, maybe we won't, but we will do this to uphold our faith. But if the Bedin uh, made a rule, not because he did it in Avera, but because he violated something, he, he took his friend to a non Jewish court, so Bedin put him in Nidui. In, uh, in we don't have to risk ourselves to uphold their personal financial dispute between each other. We, we don't have to do that. But when it comes to our religion, we will uphold our religion, even if it means getting caught by the non Jewish authorities. And then the says something fascinating in this note. Even though a Jewish person has an obligation to call out wrongdoers in the Jewish community. You have an obligation to call out Averot and corruption in the Jewish community. And our rabbis tell us that anybody who doesn't protest an Averot and they're able to, then they're considered guilty by association. I don't know how it is in other places, but in American law, for example, if... Uh, three people go to rob a bank, one person drives a car, two people break into the, one one breaks the door open to the bank and the third guy goes inside. If one of those people, God forbid, shoot somebody and kill them, all three people are guilty of murder. Even the driver who was sitting in the parking lot. This is guilty by association. Here, says the Ramah, we have a law in, in Judaism, if I can see something happening and that's, I have the ability to stop it and I don't try, I'm guilty of causing that halakha to happen. Now, in many places in the world, we don't have that power. You go up, you see someone do something wrong, you tell them, hey, don't do that, it's against the halakha, they'll smack you in the face and send you home. They're not going to listen to you. But there are instances where you are in control. I'm not, chazashalom, I'm not, I don't know the situation, I'm not a police officer, I'm not judging. There was recently a concert here in the United States in which eight people were trampled to death. And it seems like the, the, it seems, like I said, I'm not making any statements, I'm not familiar with the background of this case. But it seems like the person who was leading the concert knew what was going on and continued to perform for 45 minutes. No matter the security that was there and the police officers that were there, nobody can control that crowd. But the, one of the news reporters said that this man with a microphone who everyone paid money to come see, he had all the power in the room at that moment. If he would have taken the microphone and said, Stop right now and clear a path for the police, he could have solved the whole problem. I mean, he was the one man who really could control that crowd. If that comes out to be true, I don't know what American law would say. But Jewish law would consider a person who had the ability to stop something and didn't do it, for whatever reason, guilty of the same crime. And therefore, says the Ramah here, even though that's the case, you don't have to lose money to warn a person against an averah. Says the Ramah, there's an Ashkenazi practice that we don't tell people not to do Averot, because we're afraid that they might hurt us or take away our money. Because you don't have to lose money to rebuke a person, then even if rebuking a person would cause you any kind of financial harm, you don't have to rebuke a person, says the Ramah, and that's why in Ashkenaz there's a practice where we don't rebuke uh, wrongdoers, we don't call out corruption if it might harm us, we don't need to get involved in issues that we don't need to get involved in. Rabbi Shem Tov is bewildered how this can actually be a practice of a functional Jewish community, that when you see wrongdoing, you decide, hey, I'm not going to get involved, it's not my problem. That could really be at the root of much of the wrongdoing that we see surrounding us. He gives a few other examples which are not relevant for today, all I wish to leave you off with before we go next week into Shulchan Aruch Even Haezer is again to remember we're not pointing a finger at the Ramah, is not good enough. The rama is one of our rabbis, the rabbi who we respect and we appreciate even more than many other Chachamim. In our Better Midrash, Hara always says the Ramah is preferable to any other Acharon that exists in Jewish history. We prefer his Piskaya over anybody else. That being said, we are observing a trend already last week in Shulchan Aruch HaRuch this week in Yoredaa, where the Sephardim are strictly following the Talmud, the Shulchan and the Ashkenazim have 101 reasons for why here we don't have to follow Halakha, and why there we don't have to follow Halakha, and why there the Halakha doesn't apply. And whereas I'm not telling anybody what they should do, when it comes to evaluating, so which Halakhic tradition should we try to perpetuate in the Jewish community. Which halachic tradition can we say is the one with the most integrity and long-standing tradition? It's really unfair that Sephardim have received this reputation that we don't follow halacha properly and that other people can't rely on our halachot. That's not correct. And next week we're going to see a few other examples of this in Shulchan Aruch Evin HaEzo. Thank you so much for learning with me today. Anyone needs to go, please feel free to go. If anyone wants to stick around and ask any questions, I'm here. Uh, God willing to answer any of your questions.